Good evening, fellow traveller, and welcome to Shea Hitchcock. We have had a rash of unexplained homicides lately. I knew you would enjoy hearing that, but I'm terribly upset. You see, with all these people checking in and then not checking out, our books just don't balance. However, I'm sure our house detective will clear them all up just as soon as he finds out who stole his seeing-eye dog. I believe you will be also interested in knowing that we have television in every room. Television cameras, that is. The receiving sets are in the dining room and the casino. I see the supper show will begin in a minute. Just time enough for you to get settled. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. It has come to my attention that there are indeed people listening to these strange examinations into the legacy of Mr. Hitchcock, and I do want to thank those who have reached out to express that sentiment from the bottom of my silly heart. It does a kind reassurance to know people are enjoying the work, and so long as this series continues in its current form, I shall do my best to hold up to that standard. I do want to thank our last guest, uh, Jack Hanley, by the way. Um, we talked about the legacy of Hitchcock tackling similar subjects in four different career posts, and it was a fascinating dissection, and we've got to have him back for more. We've got to have him to talk anything, even if he wants to talk about rope. I'll talk about rope again. Um, I, I will gladly indulge that if we can find a way to make it interesting. Um, and as always, thank you to Bradley Haig for giving the Shamley Silhouette a home on the Real Nerds podcast site and feed. I cannot even begin to do this without his help, and let alone continue it, so thank you, Brad. Now on to today's episode. So far in this series, we have been discussing Hitchcock by way of his trademark, his moniker, his very reason for still capturing the minds of filmmakers and film fans to this very day, the master of suspense. But what if I were to tell you that he was also a master of humor? You don't believe me? Wait. Wait, you do believe me? Oh, good, good. Then this is going to make things a whole lot easier. Uh, yes, throughout Hitchcock's career, humor, humor has permeated the works that have made him so famous. Uh, nearly, if not every single one of his pictures, has some form of humor that tickles your funny bone, provides a relief from the suspense that he holds the audience in, and manages to stick with us um, even to this day. Uh, it's a key ingredient of his, and one you do kind of wish he would have explored more often in a raw form, like instead of just putting it into a suspense film, making it a full-out comedy. Uh, as it is, we are lucky to have not just uh, the introductions to each and every episode of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents as an example of Hitch's dry wit, uh, but we do have two motion pictures that give us a look into Hitchcock the comedy filmmaker. Uh, one deals with the screwball nature of a legally invalid marriage license and the hijinks that follow Carol Lombard and Robert Montgomery in the aftermath, 
The other, feeling closer to Hitch's tradition, follows a group of lonely people coming together to get rid of a troublesome dead body through trial and error. I speak, of course, of Mr. and Mrs. Smith from 1941 and The Trouble with Harry. Uh, and to get into the discussion of Hitchcock and his travails into the hilarious, uh, I have a special guest with me. Uh, he is a writer, a traveler, and a podcaster with two shows. Alex P. Keaton is my friend and The Mandarian Orange Show, which he co-hosts with his wife, Janelle. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Phil Vecchio. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. I am so happy we get to talk to each other on this. Uh, you were one of the first people I reached out to for this uh, for this uh, whole shindig. Because I remember us discussing Hitchcock at a certain point um, when yes, we worked yes. together on... Um, uh, <clears throat> our, our background uh, together is... Um, we knew each other initially through uh, Brendan Creasy, um, right. other podcaster, does Radio Brendo Man, um, and you guys had a short script that you guys wanted to get uh, filmed, so we filmed it, um, and in that time, we got to know each other a lot more, and I think we actually spoke a lot more at um, Palm Springs Comic Con, which... Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm not sure if that still exists. I haven't seen many ads for it. But. I think it's still going on, but I don't know. Yeah. It's fading. It, it, it was an interesting experience, to say the least, and I had never <laughs> been to Palm Springs before, So, um, and I'd like to go when it's not hot. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pretty ridiculous in the summer. Oh, oh dude, the, the sweating is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> but you have expressed a love of Hitchcock, and yes. um, it and as it turns out, when, when I reached out to you, you gave me a whole breakdown of the stuff that you have uh, <laughs> tackled and um, examined yourself and um, I actually like I, I was impressed that you've watched the silent films too because I have only run into a few people who have gone beyond the lodger and really watched like the earlier uh, silent films and uh, it's fascinating to uh, have the patience to watch them on those bootleg DVDs that we have today right um, or at least the majority of them the lodger has a criterion um, but uh, uh, stuff like Juno and the Paycock and um, uh, uh, some other ones have uh, less than quality available to them. The Pleasure Garden, his first film, uh, there's no true restoration available to the public yet. Um, right. But uh, but you also have, um, I mean, Downhill, his uh, follow-up to The Lodger, is available on a new restoration on that Lodger criterion. Uh, interesting yeah it's 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 interesting it, it's there's no special features attached to that um but the film did get a 2k restoration so that's oh. pretty fascinating that they it's basically a special feature for the lodger is what it is <laughs> yeah most of those old dvds like like you said basically bootleg ones some of those silent features would be the bonus feature in whatever other random movie it was yeah so that's how i collected a lot of them. well originally i collected a lot of the silent ones on old vhs tapes i mean that's ages me a bit but that's that's where i was first like wheeling and dealing in my hitchcock years you know that that's how i that's how i was introduced to him was the vhs introductions um to universal titles um i i wore out the mummy from 1999 when i was a kid and uh <laughs> Uh, at the beginning of it, they had two great VHS introduction or commercials. One was for the Universal Monsters, and the other one was for the Alfred Hitchcock collection, which has that synthy version of the uh, Marionette March, uh, the the, <laughs> the theme to Hitchcock. And uh, there's a if you look in the first article of the series, I put the video of that there, and it's uh, 
it's it's interesting to watch it now because I'm like, man, I, I don't think this would sell me today. <laughs> I'd have to different have, times back then, you know. Yeah, I, but and like, but at the same time, there's a kitschy value to it that I enjoy. I mean, I had the same experience this week when I watched the InSync Chili's commercial, and I'd never seen it before, <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm I'm not like necessarily happy this exists, but I'm but I'm okay with it, and like I'm glad that it brings balance to the universe. So, <laughs> right. like I think they kill one of the InSync members in that video, like in that commercial. Like, one of them, one of them just like there's a crate of baby back ribs that falls on one of them, and he's just there at the end of the commercial with his feet hanging out, not like <laughs> not unlike Harry uh, Harry uh, Harry's body with the feet sticking out in trouble with Harry. <laughs> right. Um. But so. You already kind of touched on it a little bit, but let's dive in. How do you get started with Hitchcock as a film fan, as a film goer? Like, what's what's the origin point? Well, so the first Hitchcock movie I ever remember seeing was Trouble with Harry, um, which kind of feeds into the way that my sense of humor has worked my entire life. My my parents showed that to me that my parents loved Hitchcock, and so they were always renting VHS tapes of it, and that's the first one I remember them showing me. And so it was such an eye-opening experience to see that, like, you could laugh about stuff that, you know, normally isn't funny, but if it's looked at in the right way, it's hilarious, you know? Yeah. Um, and same thing with, you know, back back when I was a kid, Nick at Night would show tr- uh, reruns of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show. And so those opening and closing bits, like, those are my favorite thing, you know? He's, he's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... From my perspective as a kid, I thought of Alfred Hitchcock as like funny, you know, that macabre sense of humor. That was kind of the primary thing I knew about him. So um, then I really got into these books called The Three Investigators is Alfred Hitchcock and The Three Investigators. Mm -hmm. And he's actually a character in the books. (laughs) He licensed his likeness to this book and he kind of helps the, the these three kid investigators solve crimes and meanwhile, he says like jokey stuff and they go visit him in his Hollywood estate and everything. And so <laughs> to me, this is the world of Hitchcock when I'm a kid. Like he's this funny guy that helps kids solve mysteries, like some kind of a Scooby-Doo extra. And <laughs> and he does funny movies about like dead bodies moving around. and stuff. So. I, I, OK, we live in a world where we're we're really into the 80s and um, and uh like putting out stuff like Stranger Things, it <laughs> and uh, even like digging into our nostalgia further with like Goosebumps becoming a movie where R.L. Stein's a character right. uh, played by Jack Black. I'm just gonna pitch it. We gotta make this into a live action movie. Get Anthony Hopkins back in the fat suit. Oh yes, and, and have him help three kids solve a mystery. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it would it would be amazing. It would be mind blowing. The oh crazy my. part is. That three investigator series is huge in Germany. In fact, they stopped making them in like the early '90s, the books. Uh-huh. But they continued writing books in German and made like TV shows out of it and stuff. But there's not a lot of English translations of them. Really? Um, Did they? Yeah. I'm looking this up right now. Did they have um, uh, somebody playing Hitchcock in this? <laughs> in the li- I don't know. Well, because here's what happened. Eventually, the license for Hitchcock's license was up. Because it started out while while he was still alive. Right. But eventually, you know, the license for his likeness was up. And so they renamed the character and actually reissued some of those early books with a, I can't remember what his name is, but some generic Hollywood producer, director guy that they would go and talk to. Uh, I hope it um, wasn't David O'Selznick. <laughs> no, no. It was, it was like a fictional person. You know, it wasn't. 
It wasn't a real person at all. So, so I have, of course, being a sort of almost uh, hoarder type, I have both versions of all, you know, that Hitchcock version and the other ones, and I'm always looking for variants and stuff. So that is that is fascinating. I'm looking this up right now. This is an episode in and of itself. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> there may be a way to extend this beyond like when 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 the when the initial like it, legacy of Hitchcock. With this, we got to just like do a weird audio book slash MST3K on <laughs> oh, <laughs> on how fantastic. You, yeah, dude, it sounds amazing. Like. They they battled an Egyptian mummy at one point. <laughs> yeah, well, so and kind of like I mentioned Scooby Doo, but it's kind of like that where there's all these supernatural things, but there's always some sort of a real explanation, you know. <laughs> oh God, that that's one that I've never like I've, I've never looked into when Scooby Doo All Stars did it. I wonder if Hitchcock ever did one. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That would have been great. That that I mean that would have it would have been the ultimate childhood fantasy. It would have totally fit. Yeah, I, I'm gonna have to check these three investigators' books out and, and <laughs> they're do, fantastic. Do five. It's, minutes. it's harder to find them now. I'm always looking at used bookstores and swap meets and scraping through eBay, but. They're they're out there if you look for them. It doesn't look yeah, it doesn't look like they're available in any reprint of any kind. I think it's because no. yeah, the, one of the one of the articles here in Wikipedia says that there's a copyright there was a copyright dispute at some point. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. So so you've got these, and then do you eventually kind of just fall into rewatch uh, right getting into the more. I guess well known aspects of Hitchcock from the public perspective, like down the line, like I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. At, at some point, I, I, you watch like a Psycho and stuff. Yes, but like I didn't see Psycho till I was in high school, you know. Um, and like something, even like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, although it falls under the comedy, I didn't watch that till I was in college because mm-hmm. that one was a lot harder to come by, especially then, you know. Yeah, now um, it's a little easier, and I say a little because it's true. It's a little easier, <laughs> right? Um, but at the time, I, you know, again, going through like used VHS piles, trying to find a copy of it was not easy, you know? Yeah. And it's and it's not one that a VHS. It's funny because VHS still holds like the record for like the most films that you could that that have been released under the under the format, because right. as DVD came around, they started culling whatever titles were more popular. Like um, now that's kind of reversed thanks to Warner Archive, but Warner Archive has really kind of uh, has kind of changed the way that works because now if you really want an older title you can get an MOD um right. and like right now Mr and Mrs Smith falls under that category um although they did release an initial DVD of it when they had whatever Hitchcocks that they had and put it out in a big collection um yeah that's one of those ones I want them to put on Blu-ray to just kind of finish up their uh, whatever acquisitions of Hitchcock they have, but so far there's no true bite for it out there in the world. Right. Um, I have that DVD collection. That's that's what I'm holding on to. Yeah, the, so. the the signature collection, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the one. I I it's it's sitting at a tower, not tower record. Uh, Twist and Shout Records in uh, Colorado. There's one there, and I'm always tempted to get it, but I'm just like, man, like I, I. I already spent like 120 bucks <laughs> getting all the films that I didn't have. So, um, well, the and- great part about it is they do have, even though it's minimal, at least some sort of little special feature on everything, including Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I know. And actually, when I went to go see Mr. and Mrs. Smith in the theater this week, they showed part of that documentary um, oh, in the cool. pre in the pre show. Yeah, I kind of wish they had showed the whole thing as the pre show because that would have like provided better description and whatnot but 
again, you know, they, they did some really good tributes to Carol Lombard and whatnot, which we will definitely talk more about yeah. as we go into the discussion. Um, but so, so yeah. And, and so at this point by now though, like you've, you've gone through the gamut of Hitchcock and, um, oh yes. Run, yes. run through every period of his, um, one of the things you had mentioned that I found, um, great was that you were really getting into the silence, but also like the man who knew too much and, uh, the, the gamo period, which is a period of Hitchcock that we've been able to touch on a little bit, but not too much. And hopefully, um, we will be able to, uh, explore that further because the early period of Hitchcock is pretty much Hitchcock in the rawest form possible because you get it in America, you get a more like refined version of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think he was much more experimental at the time too. He he went into a lot of different genres that he would later kind of, you know, focus in on suspense, but you get a lot more variety in that period as well. Yeah. And it's, and a lot of it has to do with the influence that he was receiving from uh, people like Murnau and uh, uh, I'm sure Paul Lenny has a, has an inspiration or two in there. And, uh, he said that the films of Alice Guy were an inspiration as well. So, you know, there there are there are things he's kind of calling from to define his style. And I mean, if you look as early as The Lodger, there is a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of him drawing from the expressionist movement, um, which right. he which he carries over into America. But I don't think it's at the same uh, level of influence as it was in the early British Camus period. Yeah. Yeah. But there's still even at those early silent ones, even the most obscure things, you get those glimpses really early on of some of his like style. I, I, it's why I, I love going through those old ones because you start. My my mom and I actually watched through all the silence in order chronologically, and you see his style develop through all of it, and it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. By the time you get to like, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily count jamaica in 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 this whole experience because tr- jamaica ends kind of a nightmare for him and <laughs> but and it's 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 not his fault it's i mean i love charles lawton but charles lawton can be a dick um <laughs> i mean like I, I, I it's funny though you watch night of the hunter and all the special features on there apparently he had mellowed by that point but hmm. uh but apparently he 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 ran jamaica in uh for the most part because it was his production company doing it um but right. I guess the lady vanishes is kind of the culmination of the British Gamo period, where all, almost everything he has employed up to this point is u- put to use in that film, and um, and then from there he takes it over to America. He he does Rebecca, but it's not like necessarily a uh, a, a pure Hitchcock film because uh, if you uh, uh, it isn't released yet, but when you finally listen to the Rebecca episode, you you will get to hear me uh, talk about how much I don't really like David O. Selznick. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I should clarify because like I don't, it's not that I hate him as a as a creative by any stretch. It's just that like he's you read about him and he's an utter ass. But <laughs> um, but he did produce some of the greatest things ever. Like King Kong is a treasured thing of mine. <laughs> so right, right. Um, but um, but then by the time he when he's working with Selznick, he's also getting loaned out to other studios. He works with Walter Wanger on foreign correspondent. And um, it kind of actually leads into what we're going to discuss. So before we get to the first film, which is tied closely into that chronology, um, we, we touched a little bit on it, but yeah, you, you are introduced to Hitchcock early on as a humorist or a, a, a person of mm-hmm. comedy, not necessarily a person of, uh, of drama and suspense and horror. Um, 
what what do you think about uh hitchcock the humorist like what what is it for you that just like really kind of hits that point home well again i think very early on i probably largely part of watching uh hitchcock was was a res- you know resulted from this but i've i've always kind of had a little bit of a macabre sense of humor if you will i think that kind of stuff is funny yeah. and so to me like every one of his movies that's some of my favorite stuff is the funny parts within them like you said there's always humor no matter how dramatic or or suspenseful something is there's always those moments of humor and to me that's the magic that if you can draw humor out of some dire situations that's that's really talented you know yeah as and um i don't know i i i like I said, that was my early introduction to him. I also loved, like you mentioned, some of those, uh, the books, the collections that he had of short stories. When he was still alive, he was actually writing the introductions to those collections. Mm-hmm. And again, he's just got that droll sense of humor that goes through all of it. So, I don't know. To me, like I just feel like that's somehow over all of his other stuff, all of the suspense and the drama and the romance, the comedy is, I think, what drives him forward. I like to picture him going through all this stuff, you know, in frenzy just so he can make some jokes about the eating gross stuff, you know. Like, <laughs> that was his whole point of putting that movie together, I think. I mean, well, it's it's interesting rewatching Frenzy 2 weeks ago how uh the 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 humor was much more apparent to me than it was when I saw Frenzy at a younger age. Um, <laughs> right. Not not too young. I waited until I was about like 16 to watch Frenzy. Um uh but like it's one of those it's one of those things that like yes the, it's the food scene but also just like kind of the incidental uh conversations about like the state of like the psychopathic killer like <laughs> like th- that opening scene in the bar um or like it's one of those opening scenes in the bar with um uh uh the RAF guy going into the bar to get a drink and then the two inspectors are discussing the pathology and the uh and, and the psychological implications of being a serial murderer or serial rapist it's it's really really dry matter of fact and it's being counterpointed with like everything that's going on and so it's just it just comes off as funny it's not it's not inherently funny but it's coming off as ridiculous to yeah. a, to a, to an entertaining degree um and yeah, and then there's also I think one of the funniest scenes in Frenzy, even though it's also one of the grossest, is uh, um, uh, uh, the necktie murderer having to get his necktie pinned back and going into a a, <laughs> a, a truck full of potato sacks and tear, taking the body out of the potato sacks and having to crack open a woman's rigor mortis fingers to get the pin. Like it's not. It's 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 that kind of funny that makes you feel guilty about laughing about it. Right. <laughs> um, That's what he was the master of to me, you know. It's that uncomfortable macabre humor which it's interesting because in this country we don't necessarily uh we we attach a little bit more of a self-guilt to laughing at that humor, but in Britain it's it's a little bit more understood and a little bit more inherent in them uh at least it at least that's what hitchcock makes it sound like anytime he's interviewed and um yeah. and you have people like scholars explaining his macabre sense of style which you know i think it becomes more normalized with alfred hitchcock presents um right and, absolutely and because it that's where it's going on a mass scale and it's more i guess it's in the form of puns but it goes beyond that um I think to a to a to a wonderful degree. 
when I think because I'm also a huge Monty Python fan, and uh, I think of course you, you are. Know, <laughs> Of course, of course I am. Yeah. I, I should have been born much earlier, um, I think, but <laughs> that's another discussion. But um, I think that checks out. Like, you watch their humor, and there's a lot of death humor and that, and that's, you know, they're coming along a little bit later, but I think that whole dry British approach to life, it just all fits together, and I love it. Yeah, it's it's a humor, and I love Monty Python, too, and it's very similar in the sense that, like, it's a humor that doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't, like, attempt to dismantle the, the establishment but it but it does a kind of accidentally in the process like right it like it, it's it's weird how you watch a monty python sketch on like the inquisition and it has similar hitchcockian quality <laughs> to it um and uh but yeah and ultimately I, I there's a there's a part of me that feels like similar to tarantino hitchcock's a frustrated comedian wants <laughs> yes. really much to make the audience laugh like he proclaims psycho is a comedy and i've watched it with that in mind and he's not wrong <laughs> right. i think it's just our experience with it is different but <laughs> um, you can see his mindset there that he i think he approaches a lot of movie making with comedy in mind yeah well, and I think it's important to do that to a certain respect because if you want the overall film going experience, you do want some humor into it. Like I love great art cinema, but if there's not some form of levity in it, it mm -hmm. I, it, it can be tough to watch. Like I think like the the Coen Brothers do it the best because they can do something as dark as No Country for Old Men, but that movie's hilarious. Oh my <laughs> in gosh. Several places. You're um, hitting all my, my favorites here. You know, yeah. I love the Coen Brothers too. <laughs> oh dude, Coen Brothers is a is a family tradition in my household. That <laughs> we watch Oh Brother Art Thou once a year. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, that movie's wonderful. But we're not here to talk about the Coen Brothers. We're no. here to talk about Hitchcock. <laughs> That's right. Um, so um, we're going to jump right into um, the two films here, and then we'll also talk a little bit about Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But uh, as stated before, Hitchcock, uh, working with Oselznik, um, amphetamine uh, addict of wonder, and um, <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah, <laughs> read read anything. <laughs> um, right. he, he, he He's nuts. But um, – He's getting loaned out to other studios. Uh, Hitchcock's getting loaned out to other studios by Oselznik, where it basically was like Oselznik loaned him out. He got a bit of a paycheck, but Hitchcock also got paid. But that was the trade-off instead of Hitchcock working for Selznick on the studios because Selznick kind of spread his arms out a little bit further than most and was like working on five productions at once. It's It's right. nuts. Um, some that didn't get off the ground. Um, in that time, though, Hitchcock has finally moved to America. He's settling down with Alma Revel in Hollywood, and um, he doesn't. He and his wife don't quite fit in with the Hollywood or with the with the British Hollywood crowd. Um, they they really come to America and embrace American values and uh, American traditions, whereas a lot of the British. Uh, elite in uh, Hollywood are a little bit more homesick, it would seem like. Uh, so, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so as a result, Hitchcock and Alma kind of make different friends outside of that. Among the friends they make are Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, uh, Mrs. Clark Gable at that point. Um, and Carol Lombard, we should talk a little bit about her, and an, an enormously talented lady the the she is the reason we have the definition of screwball comedy because of her right. performance in my man godfrey as a wonderful film that everybody should check out it has william powell in it it's hilarious um 
and she becomes this screwball queen. Uh, her life initially started out; she was very much working with within comedy. Uh, she had an ac- an automobile accident, had facial reconstruction surgery. Um, you really couldn't notice it unless you looked at like one particular point on her face where there was a scar. Uh, but it it certainly didn't de- take away her beauty by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and she pushed onward and forward through the screwball genre. Uh, by the time she gets to 1940, 1941, she's friends with Hitchcock, and there's the accounts vary uh, because Hitchcock tells it as uh, Carol asked me to do this movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith at RKO, so I agreed to do it because she's my friend. But Arca- RKO files show that, in fact, he was pursuing the project. So there's not a true clarity as to uh, who was pursuing what. Um, but I think it's safe to say that like Hitchcock, always a man to experiment, figured that he would maybe want to give something like this a shot. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no reason not to. He's ultimately a, a man who's like doing anything to see what fits and what doesn't fit. Um, the... Uh, the result is the film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which comes out in 1941, um, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I should stop saying that. We all know who directed these fucking movies. <laughs> um, and it was written by Norman Krasna. Uh, Norman Krasna, a, 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 a very noted writer in the in the realm of screwball comedies, and won an Academy Award for Princess O'Rourke, which is, which is also another good film. Um, and uh, it stars Carol Lombard, Robert Montgomery, and Gene Raymond. Um, and, uh, it's, it's released early January, 1941 and, uh, does pretty well, uh, box office wise. You're, you're, you shot for about $700,000. You get a 1.4 million back. So, but the thing with Mr. And Mrs. Smith ultimately is that as great a screwball comedy as it is, it being by, uh, a film by Hitchcock, it carries with it a certain weight of criticism, uh, I think in the in the in the in the, in the uh, broadest sense, because when we are looking at a filmmaker's filmography, if something stands out, we tend to judge it a little harshly compared to, say, the films that fall within the guidelines. Um, I actually think a good example of this, it's, it's going to sound weird, but Kevin Smith uh, travailed into darker territory not too long ago Um which I think to great results because I think those are two wonderful films. Um, and then he's now kind of gone back to his more um, c- truly comedic fare. Um, right. But but that's an example of a director that w- if he if you do something outside the norm, we tend to kind of look more quizzically and ask five hundred questions about like <laughs> whether or not this is merited or not, which is ridiculous. A, a filmmaker can make whatever the hell he wants to make and. We let Michael Curtiz do that all the time. So, um, and uh, to an extent, Michael Bay nowadays. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but so, uh, your experience with Mr. and Mrs. Smith comes in college. Uh, that's the same for me. Like, I didn't find out about this film until years down the line because it's not something that's immensely talked about. Yeah. Well, and I mean, honestly, for a while, I didn't even know it existed because, again, this will date me, but I went to college like in the very early years of the internet. So IMDb was not yet a thing. Um, the way that I knew about movies is my mom would get the Leonard Malton like guide to video books. Ah, uh, Leonard Malton. 
The, oh the, yes, the, and the, the, like the, seriously, it was called the book in our house. He, he's, so, I mean, it, it is. It is the good book. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and when we would go, like my mom would send us out. You know, renting a movie was a big deal as a kid. Like that was something we really wanted to do. And so she would send us to the movie store with a book, and she had marked every movie she'd ever seen. And if you came back with a movie she'd seen, you had to pay for it out of your pocket. But if you got something she hadn't seen, she'd pay for a movie, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how I initially kind of, you know, I go through the Hitchcock list and find all the movies that he had done. But at, at some point, and I don't know, the details of this are, are hazy a bit, but, you know, not every movie ever made was in these books, obviously. And so I wasn't even aware of it until much later. When I finally did come across it in college, it was a amazing experience because by that point I was already huge huge my man Godfrey uh, a fan yeah. absolutely love that movie one of my all-time favorites so to find another Carol Lombard movie that I hadn't seen was just beautiful yeah and and Carol Lombard actually my experience with Lombard and let alone this film comes uh toward the end of her uh, life unfortunately um mm. if people don't know about Carol Lombard um when World War II, when World War Two broke out with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, she jumped right in to selling war bonds and going on bond tours. Now, there's a small window here uh, where this happens. Um, she basically from December seventh, nineteen forty one, to January sixteenth, nineteen forty two, she pushes into the forefront of selling bonds and. Uh, 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 assisting men over uh, men who are about to go to war and uh what happens is uh in 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 a tragic set of circumstances she uh is she's missing Clark Gable to the point where she needs she wants to go home faster than the plan is initially a, um intending so they she and her mother board a flight um uh last minute to return to California uh, the plane refuels in Las Vegas. Uh, it takes off and then it crashed into Double Up Peak um, uh, near the Potosi Mountain. And uh, she, along with everybody on board, 22 passengers perish within an instant. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing, the, the, the reason I know this, and I'm frankly, it's one of those things that I'm fascinated with because. Prior to all of this, she filmed her last film, which is Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. And anybody who's listened to me on Real Nerds Podcast knows <laughs> the reason I love this movie is because it co-stars a certain suave, sophisticated radio man named Jack Benny, um, right. which he's wonderful in the film. It's one of the best performances he ever gave because Lubitsch knew exactly what to do with him. Um, but Lombard is amazing in that film. She's she's very much the lead in the film. Uh, to a certain extent, because she's carrying the the plot along, along thanks to it's basically about her falling in love with a young pilot um, and having a secret romance behind her husband's back, her husband played by Jack Benny. Um, and it's a film that I saw early, early on, like at, at age 11. And so uh, Lombard became a point of fascination. So you, you tend to see a lot of her films like I saw my, my, like you. I saw my man Godfrey. Um, early on and um, but this one you know it, it was a gap filler that I didn't know existed and thankfully Warner Brothers did put it out right. um, and uh, but uh, and actually the end result with re- regarding Hitchcock is that they were devastated he and Elmo were devastated by her death uh, as was 
a, a lot, or as were a lot of people. Like she, her death affected a lot of people in Hollywood, not the least of which Clark Gable being her um, husband, but also, I mean, Jack Benny like was was grief stricken. He actually uh, canceled his appearance on his weekly radio show for one week, uh, where it was just, so it ended up being nothing but songs by Dennis Day that night um, because he just he was just not up to it like it was just too big a blow um and uh hitchcock and alma are devastated and they actually end up uh moving into clark and lombard's house uh after the fact uh Hmm. and uh that house that they lived in uh for the rest of their lives uh so i know that yeah it's so it's a very uh it's 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 amazing how much she affected the lives of people around her um but prior to uh, To Be or Not To Be, uh, she makes Mr. and Mrs. Smith, um, like I say, also co- co-starring Robert Montgomery and Gene Raymond. Um, let's talk a little bit about the film. So it's very much a screwball comedy with a screwball premise. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the opening of the film is uh, essentially uh, Carol Lombard and Robert Montgomery are in the middle of a fight where they lock themselves in their room until they figure it out, which is part of their rules of marriage. Uh, and it completely affects Robert Montgomery's ability to make a living as a, as a lawyer. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a premise that if you did it today, you'd have the internet getting supremely upset with logic. Like <coughs> if you think they get angry about Batman movies, you need to see what they would yeah. do with this. <laughs> um, the yeah, context- you really had to have suspension of disbelief at this point. Oh yeah, absolutely. But they reconcile they're having breakfast before he goes to work and you know this this movie teaches you a lot about basic relationship rules and the first thing is if you're married if you're married to carol lombard let alone anybody and they ask the question if you could do it all over again would you fall in love with me all over again and if you say no, that's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> yeah. If you hesitate, that's the wrong thing to say. Yeah. So Robert Montgomery fucks up and says, "No, I probably wouldn't. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I would love to like stretch my wings further." Well, he gets his wish because the genie of fate brings in uh, uh, an old, uh, uh, an old. Uh, uh, he's he works for the city government of the city that they got married in. Uh, it's Harry Deaver, trade by Charles Halton. Um, uh, they got married in Idaho, but the jurisdiction of where they got married was all messed up, so their marriage license is not valid. So Deaver gives him his two bucks back and tells him, right. "You can, everything's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're square now. The government has no responsibility over what happens over the course of the next ninety minutes." Um, uh, so. Uh, 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 David Smith, uh, Mr. Smith decides he's going to kind of hold this information. But what we don't know is that Deaver, uh, uh, living in Idaho was also friends with Carol Lombard, uh, in, uh, v- via a uh, friendship between Lombard and his sister. So, uh, she finds out about the invalid license and now she knows. So already Krasna, maybe without even knowing it is setting up a Hitchcock plot or, it would lend more credit to the fact that Hitchcock would pursue this project because the bomb is the, there's a bomb underneath this table and it's called mm-hmm. them both knowing that the license is invalid, but neither one of them knows if the other one knows or no, she knows that he knows. 
he doesn't right. know that she knows. He doesn't know that she knows. Yeah, so but she doesn't know what he's planning to do with that information. So there is a suspense. The first, right. fi- the first like fifteen to twenty minutes of this movie does act suspenseful, but not in the traditional Hitchcock manner. It's very much uh, uh, a suspense that's purely character driven and not um, necessarily plot driven. Right. Uh, and th- so they go out to a pizzeria, which, by the way, this is. By record, the first film to mention pizza. <laughs> um, so crazy. So right away, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is one of the greatest movies ever made because it introduced the greatest food ever made. Um, <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Dude, I'm ordering pizza later today. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so uh, they go to a pizzeria, find out it's not the same pizzeria it once was, so the tension is further thickened, uh, and it all comes to a head when they go back to the room and – uh, Lombard just explodes when he comes out dressed in his nightshirt ready for bed. <laughs> and uh, she throws him out of the house, says that if our license is invalid, I'm not going to get remarried. I'm going to stretch my wings and flow free as a bird. And David realizes, oh, I, I do love my wife. I'm going to do everything that I can to the point of harassment to get her back. <laughs> And thus the the comedy is set for uh, David to pursue Anne. Um, meanwhile, uh, 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 Jeff, played by Gene Raymond, is David's co-worker, partner uh, at the law firm. And he says he's going to help David and instead uses this as an opportunity to woo Anne in her newfound singleness. <laughs> so there's a lot of shitty people here <laughs> in all the- well, and, I mean, what kind of a partner? Seriously. Yeah, yeah, and I know it's it's very much like it's a great reveal. It's a great reveal in that movie, and it's <laughs> hilarious. But it, it does like bring up a media. It's just like, well, I, obviously, I I I don't really like Jeff doing that. But then you learn as you go along, you find that Jeff is probably much better of a person for her, <laughs> like right. in terms of like decency and moral value. And David is basically like we call this today stalking and male gaze (laughs) beyond all recognition it it is truly like the modern context uh of this film is is problematic as all heck but it does fall on the screwball comedy line so in an essence it's for forgivable only to that point (laughs) yeah yeah well, and it's interesting, and I know you guys have discussed this a lot in other episodes. I don't want to retread too much, but I, to me, and, and I know you enjoy older movies and older comedies and stuff, I think it's fascinating to get inside the mindset of an audience. That How would an audience back then would have perceived this movie? And what, you know, what type of world was this presented in? You know, So I, I don't have a problem with enjoying movies that would be problematic if they were released today as long as i understand the context yeah. of what's going on there you know oh absolutely yeah no, i i mean and i bring it up mainly to just kind of like to, to introduce this concept but at the end of the day it is right. a, it's a screwball comedy based within the traditional at the time structure of marriage and courtship right. and everything so when you watch it with that lens it's absolutely fine um I mean, like, I mean, if you're able to get past it, if you're somebody who can't get past that stuff, these movies aren't for you, um, right? Which, exactly. is to- which is totally fine. But um, you know, the, the the screwball comedy element of the film is pretty efficient. Um, it's 
I will say that this is not my favorite Krasna script. Um, I think the dialogue is not the same level as, say, a Princess O'Rourke or any of the other films he worked on. And uh, But there's some wonderful moments of screwball humor, not the least of which is finding out that Jeff doesn't drink and then Carol Lombard proceeding to ply him with alcohol, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which and it's a, it's a wonderfully timed and well-paced scene that uh, kind of shows off Hitchcock's ability to know how to work within this mindset. It's not too dissimilar to how we view Howard Hawks as a screwball director because Howard Hawks didn't just do comedies. He mainly did dramas or action adventure films or in the case of the thing from another world a horror movie so right uh, but there was this other talent that hawks had that he was able to put out to great effect not the least of which with bringing a baby um and uh hitchcock i think possesses similar uh talent in that respect um but there's also the hitchcock touch in this film there's a lot of pov uh, mm -hmm. there's a very much a fluidity to this film that I think certain screwball comedies don't possess. Like the camera movement in this movie is extremely fluid and well timed and calculated. Like it is pre-planned in the way that Hitchcock would do things. Well, another big Hitchcock like signature in this movie comes shortly. Well, I think this is right before the drunk scene. Yeah. Uh, is the big like showpiece of this, famous location in this case it was the world's fair in new york there yep and oh and yeah and uh they're up on the parachute ride and get stuck in the rain and you know <laughs> featuring a big famous place is you know i mean obviously he did that a lot you know? yeah no yeah absolutely it's a huge set piece that he uses to full advantage and creates uh it creates a moment um usually it's for suspense in, in this case it's very much for comedy purposes and, right. and and you know there's also uh it's not a huge location per se but the lodge at the end of the movie is is has got a look to it and a feel to it that is uh yeah. decidedly americana in its approach um and uh but the pursuit and the chase keeps happening throughout the movie uh it all leads at the end to a lodge uh up in the mountains uh where they're going to go ski where Jeff and Ann are going to go skiing and come to find out that David uh it, it appears has been standing out there for so long waiting for them because David remembered that he and Ann were going to go up here this weekend. Uh he's frozen in the snow. They bring him in and they try to bring him back to consciousness and Carol Lombard's defenses are starting to weaken on uh on David. Uh, but then, you know, it's revealed that David's faking this because it's all still part of his crazy scheme to get back <laughs> together with Anne. Uh, the film comes to a head with uh, certain things being revealed about Jeff, but also a lot of things really being revealed about Anne. Like her character in the film is it's interesting how much agency she has in this movie to the point where it's one of the like we talked about. We've talked about on other episodes about Hitchcock female leads and how much agency do they have and who has the most. And as of this point within the discussion, it's usually been Grace Kelly and Rear Window because she has a lot of agency in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but um, even even if you don't see it that way, there, there's a lot of things decisions she makes. Lombard's making decisions in this movie for herself. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, I think like it, it, the ending might be a little debatable, but I think ultimately she's she's <sighs> choosing to be back with David at that point. 
Well, and and it kind of checks out if if the backstory being true. I mean, first of all, we know Hitchcock was friends with Carol Lombard, but also that you know supposedly she pursued him to make this movie. You know, it would make sense that she would want a role where she's in control. You know, <laughs> no, absolutely. She she would be the one pursuing this situation, and so therefore, in a lot of her films, she has. She 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 holds up with the men, in yeah. in, in in most every fashion. I think my, my man Gottfried is a bit of an exception because she's so ditzy beyond all belief <laughs> right. that, that it's very much William Powell making a lot of decisions. Um, but like even in To Be or Not to Be, Carol Lombard is making active decisions, and there's very little regret in her decisions beyond the surface level of, oh, I wish I hadn't cheated on my husband, but she's actively making decisions to improve the situation for the people around her that are at risk of being captured by the Nazis. So um, it's, it's a, it's, she was a very powerful woman in that respect and held a lot of uh, decision-making within her realm with each role she played. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the end you have David, uh, and her David and Anne playing the uh, the uh, the will they won't they game to the to, into the ground. Um, right. they, they, they they up to the last minute is like the only time, you know, oh, they've finally made it together is when the camera pans up to. Oh, I should do the setup. She's putting on skis to go out <laughs> skiing, but she can't get them on. So uh, David helps her. But then she's like, I can do it myself. And then. And starts calling out for help, for help. And David says, I'll, I'll help you, won't I? And they, uh, she, the camera dips up, pans up to the top of the skis, and you hear them making out, and the skis cross into an X. <laughs> and then the camera fades out, the end, an RKO radio picture. Right. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever, if you've ever seen that Family Guy bit, where they make fun of panning the camera away when people are about <laughs> to make out. And I think it's uh, uh, Lois's father is just like, yeah, you know what that means? It means we're going to do it. <laughs> like that's pretty much th- that's this. That's the example of this. Uh, that is absolutely what that is there for. <laughs> and it's, and it's a trope that I think it, 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 I love that it exists in the older period because it is like so on the nose, but it's so charming at the same time. Like it's <laughs> not, it's never a like it's never an eye roll or a frustration for me. Like it is very much like oh I, yeah, <laughs> like I know what's going on here. And it dispels the rumor that movies in the '30s, '40s, and '50s were a bunch of clean cut, wholesome stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. Oh like, no, absolutely. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. I've, I've talked about it about Doris Day and her legacy. I'm just like half the movies she made were sex comedies, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, they had to be. You know, they had to dance around the subject more, but that was what it was about yeah it's there it, it's totally there um but uh um, you know, one interesting thing about the skis thing i don't know if you noticed this because it kind of appears like at the end oh he's coming to save her right mm-hmm. but there is a moment there where she's getting her skis on successfully and she looks <laughs> over at him and she actually unclicks the binding on her ski yep because to show that you know to try to trick him that she still needs help she's putting on a show to get him to come to her yeah and and in consequence uh, David has been putting on a show in his own right, so it's turnabout is fair play. Like, right? It is very much a battle of the sexes in that regard, and uh, it 
it's interesting. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's not the most refined screwball comedy ever made, but it is right. like, but it, but it is one that holds a lot of like promise and manages to keep you engaged as an audience because there is, there's a, there's a second bomb under the table in the respect of like, will they, or won't they get back together? But it's not, it's not the same as the Hitchcock bomb theory, but it, um, but it's up to, but it's something that there is suspense in the movie. It's so weird that it, there is suspense in this yeah. screwball comedy, uh, but not, from a traditional sense. So that's why it's hard to pin Hitchcock into it. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, but in, in any case, the film is released. Um, uh, Hitchcock says he's never really was happy with it. He rarely talks about it in the Hitchcock Truffaut interview and doesn't really discuss it outside of that. But uh, the movie was a hit, made a profit, uh, uh, got really good reviews uh, from at least Variety and a couple other places. Like New York Times wasn't interested in it, but uh, but it was it was successful enough to be uh, re, re reproduced in different fashions. Uh, not the least of which was the Lux Radio Theater, which was Cecil B. DeMille's uh, bag on radio, where Carol Lombard did it with Bob Hope in June of 1941. Uh, uh, about uh, roughly around uh, six to seven months before her death. Uh, the Screen Guild Theater readapted it with Errol Flynn and Lana Turner, which I would love to listen to that one. Uh, and then again in uh, 1942, uh, later in the year with Joan Bennett, Robert Young, and Ralph Bellamy. And I love me some Ralph Bellamy. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then the Screen Directors Playhouse did it with Bob Montgomery, Mary Jane Croft, and Carlton Young. Uh, so uh, it, it it has had a life outside of the film itself, but it does seem to die after radio dies. So, <laughs> well, and I'll tell you when fast forward however many decades, they made another movie called Mister and Mrs. Smith, and I heard about this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're remaking a great Alfred Hitchcock comedy. And no, and then it was not. <laughs> it was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. It's and a, it's it was a, not great. It, it it's funny because. Uh, I've had to think about that film recently, not because of this, but because of dark Phoenix. Cause uh, the guy who directed dark Phoenix, Simon Kinsberg was the one who helped develop the concept for Mr. And Mrs. Mm -hmm. Smith. So it's uh, it's, it's interesting. I, and it's weird because when I heard there was a Mr. And Mrs. Smith uh, uh, from Hitchcock, I was just like, well, so he made a movie about two people who were spies that were also married. <laughs> And then you watch him like, nope, 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 not nope. related. That's just a However, really good title for a movie. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's great. However, I would say that a sort of like spiritual successor to me anyway is The War of the Roses, which is a movie I love. Yes, Danny DeVito's War of the Roses is very much this movie. That, yes, they're, they're, I mean obviously it goes to a little darker, you know, area, but of course it's, it's Danny DeVito. <laughs> well, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean that movie to me again feeds into that whole macabre sense of humor that I have already developed with, uh, with Albert Hitchcock. So when I saw that movie, I was like, yep, this is for me. Dude, I, I, I followed, I, I followed down your path, but in a very different way. Cause like, I mean, like if, if we'll use DeVito examples, like death, the smoochie was the movie that oh, made me realize he's a genius. So, so underrated. It, I, yeah, I love that movie. I don't understand why people bash that movie. Like, I, I know why John Stewart does it. Cause it's a joke, but, um, but yeah, no, it's 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 a but Mr. and Mrs. Smith ultimately is one of those flicks that I think more people should take a look at and not necessarily 
you don't have to have Hitchcock baggage with it. I don't think. I don't think no, you, not you, at all. you don't need it for that. But when you see what Hitchcock does in it, that is clearly him. Uh, there is um, there there is a definite sense of like, okay, he clearly made this movie. But if you're not versed in his visual language, I don't think you're going to see it right away. Uh, right. The um, uh, there there is a fun little fact about this that kind of ties into Psycho as as it would turn out. So in the movie, uh, Gene Raymond's character Jeff uh, introduces Anne to his parents, and David uh, manages to get Anne alone in uh with in the in the office, uh, and it then pushes Jeff and his parents into a bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. Bathrooms are a big thing in Hitchcock movies, uh, and uh, this one in particular obviously doesn't show a toilet yet. Um, but there was apparently uh, the original soundtrack was a noisy flushing toilet. Uh, and <laughs> instead they replaced because again, the Hayes code and the sensors were worried about stuff like this. They changed it to clanging pipes and that's what you get in that scene. So uh, there's no, so we don't get, but, but this is, this is the origin point where Hitchcock goes, one day I'm going to show a bathroom. I'm going to show a toilet. I'm going to show a toilet flushing i'm getting you're going to hear the swirl of water going down 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 and uh <laughs> alma said hitch are you okay down 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 <laughs> that's that's the origin of the toilet and psycho that's yeah. i never thought of that it, it's also the it, it's also the origin of the spiral in uh vertigo and the poster so yes. yeah again yes. this is welcome to zach's history class where it may not be correct but it's certainly entertaining um, hitch in the toilet. Yeah, hitch in the toilet. Oh my god, that should have been the title of this series, not the Shamley silhouette. <laughs> <laughs> Bathroom talk with Hitch. Um, so, but anyway, uh, that that wraps up Mr. and Mrs. Smith for us. Um, the the film. Uh, it, uh, oh, one quick note: it was the first Alfred Hitchcock movie to be shown on uh, network television in the U.S., oh. uh, which makes a lot of sense because it would be the start of like them grabbing stuff that nobody places a lot of value on and reshowing it on TV. That's how TV builds right. up his reputation is reshowing old movies uh, before it even has content of its own. So, uh, but yeah, Mr. And Mrs. Smith, a wonderful film. Uh, the time in between that Hitchcock makes a lot of uh, dreary pictures, uh, some classics <laughs> you might know of like spellbound and suspicion and notorious and rope and under Capricorn, the, the parodying case. And, uh, he uh he uh he does transatlantic pictures with Sidney Bernstein uh that that uh flops like crazy uh so he starts working for the studios again uh he does uh rear window uh with paramount and uh right after that uh he decides that he wants to do this little story called the trouble with harry um paramount's not particularly thrilled by doing it but they made he made them a lot of money with Rear Window, so they said, "Sure, why don't you go ahead and do this little movie?" They know full well that Trouble with Harry is not going to be the same value of Hitchcock as uh, what they're used to getting from a financial sense. So, in in essence, you're not getting the typical uh, Hitchcock movie that has a um, uh, uh, a certain suspenseful quality to it. Actually, I lied. Um, he first does it to catch a thief uh, for Paramount. So he's made two successful films for them at this point. Mm-hmm. So the trouble with Harry comes in the same year. So it's clearly very much a 
I'll do one for you, you do one for me kind of thing. Um, even if the uh, even if it's not super clear in the production notes. So, um, but we get the trouble with Harry in 1955, um, directed by you know who, um, uh, with a screenplay by John Michael Hayes, uh, based on the novel by Jack Trevor Story, uh, and uh, it's a British story, uh, and it's this it's one of the second times where Hitchcock is adapting something made for a British audience into an American audience. He first he does it with Rope prior to this, where you're taking a British play by Patrick Hamilton and turning it into an American thing, and the translation in Rope is a different circumstance because you're dealing with a homosexual subtext and also just the nature of the violence and the attitude towards it um, and the whole Nietzschean nonsense. Um, but, uh, but Trouble with Harry, though, is... Um, very much falls into that British humor we were discussing earlier on in the episode. Yes. And, um, and ultimately you, what you have with trouble with Harry is uh, I I've been, I've had to watch it a couple times the, this, this year to prep for this because the first time I rewatched it, I had forgotten how fun it was. And then I just kept going back to it because it's just, it's so different, but it's so Hitchcock at the same time. Uh, the first time I saw it, I don't think I gave it much thought um, initially because it wasn't Psycho or The Birds or uh, right. or North by Northwest. So it just it was just kind of like it was a small film that I understood. I was like about fourteen when I saw it, and I understood why it was good, but I wasn't like as meshed with it as an adult. I love this movie so fucking much. <laughs> um, you're so this is the first Hitchcock film you see though. Yeah, absolutely. This is my introduction. This is where, and, you know, like you said, unlike Mr. and Mrs. Smith, his fingerprints are all over it. I mean, you can tell this is a Hitchcock movie from a mile away. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's just so, I mean, the the humor, being able to find humor and digging up a body over and over again, and the way that they're all so casual about it, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's so funny to me. Oh, when uh when Miss Gravely, oh, the names are so fantastic. <laughs> Miss Gravely, um, Mrs. Wiggs, um, what's the Captain Wiles? I don't know. And even Sam Marlowe, who's half Sam Spade and half Philip Marlowe. Like, yeah, <laughs> all, all of it is just—it's brilliant. But uh, when Miss, I think the 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 moment that you know this is going to be like just amazing is Miss Gravely comes up and. Uh, Captain Wiles is dragging the body along and she comes up and she goes, Oh, what seems to be the trouble? You know? And, and, and she says like, <laughs> is the man dead? And like, and she just, or like, uh, no, Captain Wiles says the man's dead and she just kicks him. Yeah. <laughs> just kicks him. So, yeah, it seems to be. <laughs> so we should, um, uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get some prior info out of the way. Um, yes. Uh, so, um, this is, uh, this is, this movie's important for a lot of reasons though. And reasons that, uh, we'll come to know throughout the history of cinema. Uh, it's the introduction of Shirley MacLaine into yes. cinema. Uh, they found Shirley MacLaine. Uh, they were watching a play on Broadway. Um, she was in it. They went to go ask for the woman who was playing that particular role, and they thought it was the original actress, but it turns out it was Shirley MacLaine, who was the understudy, who was performing that night. They bring her in. Uh, she's uh, uh, she she moves into film like a champ like she's wonderful in this film um and this is also the first time hitchcock works with bernard herman 
Uh, yes. We've talked about Bernard Herman a little bit, but we haven't gotten to ta- chat about him too much. And I think he deserves an episode in and of himself. But oh, absolutely. The, 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 the beginning cue of this film and the first uh, piece of music is actually something that was used in a prior piece, uh, but then gets used for, uh, uh, but for Trouble with Harry, and it basically becomes the Trouble with Harry theme. Um, and then uh, it's, it's the beginning of Bernard Herrmann getting to have an experimental period with Hitch where they, they produce some fantastic pieces, but this is the most lighthearted Herman score I've ever heard ever, mm-hmm. ever. If you go back before this with stuff like citizen Kane and, and uh, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't even come close to uh, uh, like the, 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 the quality of this, which is just like, it's probably one of the best comedy scores I've ever heard hands down. Well, it's perfect. And he totally captures that mix of like the macabre, but also the comedy. It's just, it's a it's the musical language is perfect. It's spot on. It that cue uh when whenever they come up on the body like that din din din. It, <laughs> it's similar to my, in my head to the Cape Fear the Cape Fear theme. Uh <laughs> and so but so and it it presents that danger, but the danger is so docile, but it's like it, he's he's very much Hitchcock's making fun of the things he normally tackles in this in other films with this and it's it's interesting to see how he uses his technique to essentially create a story that's making fun of himself uh not too dissimilarly from how like mel brooks takes a hitchcock concept and makes high anxiety right Um, like different uh approaches filmmaking wise but the but the intent is there um and trouble with harry uh very much deals with this is I think this is what this is a, a summation of what Hitchcock laughs about to himself when he's not around people. So <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's very much that. But we can go through uh the the plot here. Um we'll 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 list the names of our uh of, of our uh wonderful cast here. You have Edmund Gwen playing Captain Albert Wiles. You have John Forsyth, the beautiful John Forsyth, like that gorgeous <laughs> man playing Sam Marlowe, as you said, kind of a combo of Philip Mar- Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. Uh, you have Shirley MacLaine playing Jennifer Rogers. You have Mildred Natwick playing Miss Ivy Gravely, and uh, she's wonderful in the movie. Yes. She's absolutely delight. Uh, Mildred Dunnock playing Mrs. Wiggs or Wiggy. Uh, you have Jerry Mathers as Arnie Rogers. Um, uh, Je- Jerry Mathers, uh, also uh, known as Beaver Cleaver. Uh, in, in Leave it to Beaver, um, which, by the way, full disclosure, I'm thoroughly convinced that Harry actually died because Eddie Haskell had something to do with it. <laughs> uh, terrible theory, but, um, you know, hey, I'm going to throw be. out any possibility that I can. Conspiracy is fun. Uh, Royal Dano plays uh, Del- Sheriff De- Deputy Sheriff Calvin Wiggs. Royal Dano's interesting because he's he's in a lot. Like one of the last things he did was Twin Peaks playing Judge Clinton Sternwood, which mm-hmm. I blew my mind rewatching it because I was just like, he's he's in Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, and he died not too long after that. He's also in Ghoulies, too, which I, I wish I didn't know that. But <laughs> uh, and uh, you also have Parker Fenley playing the millionaire who buys uh, Sam's paintings. Um, Parker Fenley, I want to bring up. He's he's a pretty interesting cat. 
he he did a lot of radio and a lot of uh, movie later on in his career. But in radio, he played a lot of like East Coast characters, like like kind of that waspish voice. But he also did it in different variations. One of the one of the big things he was in was in the Fred Allen show. He played um, Titus Moody, who was an an East Coast New England farmer who just like spoke with this kind of like this very matter of fact, like, well, I don't know, but I don't know. And you hear it a little bit in his portrayal where he's just like, you can be unreasonable if you want. I don't care. (laughs) You want a bunch of strawberries delivered? Okay. Like I'll have to send you a clip. Like it's pretty interesting. Like cause he makes his bread and butter off of that. That's funny. Cause I never would have pictured that seeing his performance. Yeah. I, to me, he's a millionaire, but yeah, it's, it's, I'd like to compare that. That's interesting. It's, it's fascinating. But so the plot is, um, we start off in beautiful Vermont, uh, beautiful scenery, beautiful photography. Uh, the exteriors of this film were shot on location. The interior was shot on sets. Um, in fact, it was, so much to the meticulous nature of Hitchcock that they had to bring leaves from Vermont <laughs> and then glue them back to the trees that were on the sets. Uh, th- this this man was insane. <laughs> That's it. But you know what's funny? It's not too dissimilar from how John Carpenter um, uh, and his crew on Halloween had to reuse their fall leaves uh, because they were shooting Halloween during the summer in California. So you had, you would get those leaves, you'd blow them all over the place and then the crew was gathering them up again and putting them into a bag and then throwing them out again. Um, So very, very similar premise. Um, And uh, ultimately I, it, it came down to a, uh, uh, an issue with shooting outdoors that led them going back into set. Cause I, uh, and also Hitchcock did not like working on location. So right. all falls. It's funny place. because of all the leaves, there's several times throughout the movie where you'll see like a random leaf stuck on people. Yep. <laughs> I think that's because they did that blowing of the leaves around, like you said, yep, but on it's, this as well. It's all got some glue on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so uh, the film itself takes place in Highwater, Vermont, uh, even though those exteriors were shot in Craftsbury, Vermont. Uh, and, uh, the scenery is beautiful. It's tranquil. It's a small town in new in, in the in the East Coast. All is fine. Um, little Arnie is walking around with his ray gun and uh, or his his army gun and uh, uh, just travailing the woods, not a care in the world. <laughs> and he comes around and he finds the body of Harry Warp uh, lying there dead. Get that wonderful music cue, which I'll lay into this episode multiple times uh, <laughs> as much as I can without getting sued. And um, Harry's dead as a doornail. They all, the thing that indicates that he's dead other than his lifelessness is a small little trickle of blood on the forehead, which I think is a beautiful touch uh, considering that the level of violence that was acceptable at the time was almost non-existent. Right. And to be able to have it in a movie that is relatively lighthearted and uh, in in certain aspects is is pretty fascinating. Like it's it it it's again that molding of the dark and the twisted and the macabre into this idyllic setting, um, which mm-hmm. is which is something that he would do before and after. Like he did some stuff like this in Shadow of a Doubt, um, uh, but this is the extreme version of it to a to a large extent. So uh, Arnie sees the body, he runs away. <laughs> uh, Captain uh, Albert Wiles, meanwhile, is uh, uh, finishing his hunting for the day. He hasn't caught anything, and he says something so beautiful where he's just like, uh, 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 
it goes along the lines of uh, 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 if people aren't excited for you, then they can't be. Di- uh, then you can't disappoint them when you come up with nothing. Like it's right. it's something. It's such a beautiful little line that uh, I, like watching it this week, I was just like, "Yep, that's that's how life is, Mister Wiles. That's, <laughs> that's how life is, Captain." Uh, so he goes wandering around. He finds a sign that says no hunting and he just tosses it away. So <laughs> he's, he's very American <laughs> right. um, uh, goes. And then suddenly ha- happens upon Harry's body. He assumes that he's killed him because uh, th- there's no other way that this dead man would be dead on the ground. Um, so he's trying right. to do something with it, but people keep coming by uh, the first of which is um, uh, Mrs. Rogers, who uh, comes across it with Arnie and she's relieved to see that this body is dead and uh, thanks Providence. Uh, Arnie asks who Providence is and she says a very good friend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, they leave the body and uh, Wiles is kind of taken aback by her callousness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then um, a bum comes by and steals Harry's shoes. Oh wait, no, before that, no, before that, um, Dr. Greenbow, uh, right. is wa- uh, the, the, the coroner is walking through the woods reading a book, not paying attention to anything, <laughs> uh, trips over Harry's leg. And in what I think is one of the most beautifully blocked moments in a Hitchcock movie, it's, it's definitely in the top 10, if not, if not like at the very least at number five, is he trips over the body and is it, he manages to, as such, continue reading the book without even noticing the body. <laughs> <laughs> right it's, he kind of feels around for his glasses and then just moves on yeah and it's it's that's the humor that you are referring to immediately it's just like i've got this corpse in the middle of the in, in the middle of the forest i've just tripped over it but 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 this book is so interesting it's such a good book <laughs> it's right. such a good book it's probably the best book i think it was forever amber because that was always fascinating to people <laughs> in the 40s um it was a sexy book back then guys um, but so, um, and then finally a tramp comes by, steals the shoes off this dead man. <laughs> he kept the rags though. He kept the rags that he took off of his feet. Yeah. Just in case. Oh yeah. No, it's true. He's, he's, he's practical and polite. If, if not, right. the mo- he's probably the most efficient tramp. <laughs> right. He's polite. Everybody in this movie is polite. I, I, it's, it's a thread throughout this movie. Everybody is super polite in this yeah. movie. It's redonkulous. Um, uh, but uh, Mrs. Gravely and uh, Captain Wiles, they meet up. Uh, Miss Gravely is uh, a little uh, hesitant at first to really acknowledge anything. She's kind of playing it cool, kicks the body, and kind of tries to shrug it off. And uh, Wiles and Gravely have this beautiful, beautiful relationship that permeates into the film. This, yes. this, this older couple, this, this, these older people who find some form of love between them at their, in their golden years. And, uh, she invites him over for blueberry muffins and, um, maybe a little bit of elderberry wine, uh, which, which gets captain Wiles excited. What I find interesting is that she doesn't really believe in herself and captain Wiles is pretty unsure too. So they're a match made in heaven. Like, yes. Oh, it's beautiful. These two very unsure people. Um, so, uh, we, we, we move past that point. Um, and we hear some small singing in the distance <laughs> and who is it, but 
I'm assuming it's not the voice of John Forsythe, unless otherwise. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, a song is a little song is being played called "Flag in the Train to Tuscaloosa," uh, and thus we are introduced to Sam Marlowe. Uh, in the process of that song being sung, two things are being done. One is beautiful setup of the scale and scope of the town without losing the small town touch. Um, it establishes the community and what it is. It's it's comedy filmmaking at its finest because it's taking an artistic approach to the environment and not just placing the camera and saying, okay, shoot, you know? Right, right. Um, uh, and then, uh, but the other thing is flagging the train to Tuscaloosa. <laughs> <laughs> now, how familiar are you with the history of this song? <laughs> not that familiar, so enlighten me here. Okay, so... The the bottom line is is that there's a point in Hitchcock's career that starts it here where studios are really trying to get him to put hit songs into his movies. Right. Uh and you know, I would imagine Hitchcock says immediately, No, that sounds fucking stupid. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, and but nevertheless, they agree. And th- th- the compromise is basically reached that, you know, you, you you have a song like this, but it's sung by John Forsythe's character. Uh, it's a song right. written by Raymond Scott. Uh, Forsythe is not the performer. Uh, and uh, and the but it's uh, not really there's no real like true lyrics to it. It's kind of like muddled lyrics mis- mixed with a lot of whistling. There is a cash-in song titled uh, The Trouble with Harry for this film, by the way. Um, but the um, uh, the song Flag on the Train to Tuscaloosa is recorded, put out there. And uh, uh, if you listen to the song, I'll play a little bit for it for the for the audience. But it's very much a uh, upbeat kind of jazzy affair with loud horns. And mm-hmm. uh, it's so interesting because, like, I think it would be fun to actually take that song. If you ever remade trouble with Harry, use this at the end credits with an animated logo. <laughs> cause it, cause it could work and it could play into the, to the, to the dark sense of humor, especially in the nostalgia world we live in today. It would right. work beautifully. Um, but, uh, the recording of the cash in song that's titled the trouble with Harry, uh, is a recording sung by, uh, it's a song by Floyd Huddleston uh, with Herb Wiseman and Mark McIntyre. Um, and uh, it was also recorded by Ross Bagdasarian Sr., uh, oh. who we all know today as uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Rock Bag- Ross Bagdasarian. Ross Bagdasarian also in Rear Window. So, That's right. And I have to say, I liked Alvin and the Chipmunks. There were some disparaging remarks made um, in earlier episodes. Oh, I just want to defend them a little bit. There. Oh, 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 no. I mean, um, you're. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan, and my my remarks are a little callous on them. But I do remember <laughs> having fun with them as a kid. Like that Christmas album was all over our 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 car stereo Absolutely. when we drove to the mall for during Christmas time. So far be it for me to say that they had no influence on me. They clearly did. <laughs> Um, and, and I don't mind those Jason Lee movies that much. I, 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 or at least the first one, first, first one. They're fun with the kids. I have a different perspective. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Again, like, but I grew up in the eighties with the like new Alvin and the chipmunks with the the chipmunk adventure, like that kind of stuff. Chipmunk adventure is one of my favorite things about the chipmunks. That's a wonderful film. Uh, and, uh, I remember that, I, I, that theme song is, in, is still an incredible theme song to this day. Absolutely. We're the chipmunks. 
it, it's wonderful. Um, actually remember the chipmunks doing like a monster movie kind of parody video that I wore out because it was monster related. <laughs> um, but so, uh, anyway, um, yes. <laughs> to get back to track, Sam Marlowe, back where we're at. Yeah. Right. Sam Marlowe, uh, we, we established him. He's a painter. He's not, uh, he, he's, he's, he's not a successful artist, but he's a good artist. Clearly. Um, I know this cause he's not drawing his actual drawings. <laughs> right. He got a really good artist, uh, to uh, go ahead and uh, do those paintings, uh, uh, John Farron. Um, and then the actually the picture of Harry that he draws is actually done by John Farron's wife, Ray. Uh, oh. And uh, uh, and uh, actually from the at the opening credit sequence, when you have that kind of uh, panoramic drawing, it's done by mm-hmm. Saul Steinberg, um, Saul Steinberg, who uh, did uh, did cartoons for The New Yorker and uh, specifically view from the world of Ninth Avenue, which was a which was a big recurring segment. So hmm. um, but so he's not selling his paintings. Uh, Mrs. Wiggs and him are talking when Miss Gravely enters and she's buying teacups for uh, uh, or coffee cups for uh, her, her impending date with Captain Wiles. And Sam just immediately starts listing his opinions on how Mrs. Gravely could look hotter. (laughs) It's, it's fun. Like it's, it's actually, it's, it's one of those, like it's one of those humors that doesn't necessarily, you can't do it today, but it does work in the context of that film. Absolutely. Like it's a fun, a small fun bit is that he says, you know, she says, how old do you think I am? And he guesses 50 and she says 42, but she really was 50 at the time. Yeah. So at least they were kind to the actress in that regard. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean like far be it like Hitchcock lets her have her moments and, and it's, it's it's absolutely wonderful. Um, But uh, all this is happening while a millionaire is looking at the paintings. Maybe we'll see him later. Who knows? Um, (laughs) Also one thing that I thought was interesting is Sam cuts a pack of cigarettes in half. Yeah, it buys so that pay for the other half yeah, later. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I don't I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. But man, like that would have been a great idea to pitch to the Seven Eleven clerk. <laughs> <laughs> like, what if I cut in half? Uh, I mean, like, I know I'm like one half won't be filtered, but the other one will. <laughs> See, this is the thing you can only do with unfiltered cigarettes. It's why Lucky Strikes were so popular back then. That's right. Um, but so um, uh, Sam <laughs> is wanders through the forest takes his etchings out and starts to draw comes across Harry and kind of looks at it for a bit and then starts drawing it. (laughs) Yeah. Pays no Well, that moment. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) No, you go ahead. Just that when he does the drawing and he's drawing this, this scene, you know, this, this panorama of all the nature. And then he looks at his drawing and sees these odd shapes that he's drawn. And is like, Whoa, what's this here? And then realizes it's the feet. <laughs> I love the idea that he could have accidentally drawn a dead body's feet and not realize that he drew that. You know, that would be that actually would be incredible if that were the painting that uh, Calvin Wiggs finds afterwards is like the the, the feel, revealing of the body and not necessarily the face of a man. Right. Right. Um, it would it would just be interesting to see how they'd play with that. But uh, regardless, he sees it and then he he notices it and he actually tries to tell him to get out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're ruining my painting. Get out. Um, uh, comes across Captain Wiles. Um, they start talking about the situation. There's a time lapse by which point he finishes the uh, picture of Harry's face, and the decision is made uh, to uh, 
it, to interrogate or investigate Jennifer Rogers on the situation. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, I watched it last night, but I'm trying to remember that they decide at that point after he comes back to bury the body, correct? Yes, but first they want to find out more information because she's clearly the only one that knows who this guy is. Right. So she, so he goes to Jennifer's house, uh, meets young Arnie, trades him uh, a frog for uh, tra- trades him a frog for uh, uh, fudge. He gives dead rabbit. Yeah, for the dead rabbit, and uh, Arnie goes off with the dead rabbit. Yes, that's right because it comes back to play. Uh, right. And then uh, uh, Jennifer and Sam have a conversation about Harry. Jennifer reveals that Harry married her after her husband, who was his brother, died um, on noble intentions. But on their wedding night, she finds out that he doesn't really love her. And it's more much more of a like just doing it because I have to thing. Yeah. But he also has a sense of possessiveness. So when she leaves, he comes to find her, uh, starts getting violent uh, she knocks him over the head with a milk bottle, and he goes staggering around, confused, claiming that he's going to find his wife and take him take her home. Right. So we're learning that Harry is an asshole, and um, we 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 get more of that later on. But uh, it's it's similar in a respect to they don't really. I love how they don't go into detail of what Harry exactly does. That's such uh, so egregious uh, to Jennifer. It's very much like Rebecca, where it's very much just implied. There's stuff. There's right. just things implied about his demeanor, and as he's a figure, much like Rebecca, that's not inherently present as a living, breathing thing. Uh, he kind of is a Rorschach for your worst fears and nightmares. Yeah, yeah. You apply whatever to him. He's like a blank slate. Yeah, exactly, and and hence why it's so hilarious every time we keep putting him in the ground and taking him back up. Right. Um, so it dispels any like sympathy you would have for it. And it allows you to laugh at the situation. Yeah. Which is, I think one of those inherent pieces of the humor that Hitchcock is attracted to when he sees a piece like this and says, I'm going to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So um, uh, Sam goes off to help Captain Wiles bury the body. Uh, Captain Wiles then goes on his uh, uh, gets spiffed up looking splendidly spiffed up for his date <laughs> like he cleans up man like that guy cleans up right. and uh, he uh, goes to Mrs. Gravely's house Mrs. Gravely says what a surprise and he goes but you invited me and she goes but it still feels like a surprise their relationship is so lovely and I love it it's so adorable I love it it is they're so cute oh god it is and so they sit down to have their blueberry muffins and coffee and uh, little Arnie comes over with a dead rabbit. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Mrs. Gravely asks, where'd you find it? And, uh, and little Arnie goes, buy the blueberry muffins. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we should talk a little bit about Mathers. He's pretty much a genius in this movie. <laughs> he's, he is. He, is. He's, he really is. He's He's got... He knows he's driving it all along. He figures out how to get the best out of everyone. Yeah, he's he's and he's very he's you know like Sam sees him as an inconvenience. I just think he's like he's very much like fate popping in and out. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's it's very it's easy to see how an actor like that who's so powerful with his approach, even at that young age, you, of course you cast him and leave it to Beaver, and of course oh, yeah. he's as popular as he is for years. Uh, and and actually listening to Mathers talk about his time on set with uh, 
Hitchcock and McLean is is pretty delightful. If you have the Blu-ray of uh, Trouble with Harry, it, it's it's a fun little uh, bit to watch him all all those years later. Um, but uh, so uh, he, he trades the dead rabbit to Captain Wiles for two bear, blueberry muffins, goes away, um, and uh, they uh, continue their date. Uh, Captain Wiles goes back to bury the body with um, uh, with Sam. Uh, or they, they no, wait they go to bury the, they go to bury the body again right and then uh, uh, he goes back to Mrs. Gravely and Mrs. Gravely reveals that she was the she she thinks she's the one who killed Harry because Harry in his stupor after getting hit with the milk bottle came up to Mrs. Gravely and started to basically assault her <laughs> Right. And she hits him over the head again, knocks him out uh, or like, but thinks she killed him and walks away. So that's why she's apprehensive around Captain Wiles uh, when she sees the body right. of Harry because she's seen Harry before. So, so. And what's really interesting about that scene, too, is when she's describing what happened. And I'm assuming it's because of Hayes Code or whatever at the time that she's not allowed to say like he sexually assaulted me. So she says, I was really irritated. He irritated me. Yeah. I believe is the word that she used. It's, and he it, kept being like, Oh, you struck him. And she's like, I was really irritated. Yeah. No, they, they use a, uh, th- these are words that they use at the time, like irritated attacked. Um, it's a broad term. Like it, it's, it's meant to cover every possible angle, depending right. on who's li- reading it or watching it, which I mean, they do that in they do that in radio a lot too. But like in film specifically, like you know, rape is handled very much in the in a weird broad context. It's not handled with specific definition. Um, right. Like there's a lot of assault going on in early silent films, but they it's it's because of how much you can show. It's it's never. It's clear as you get older, but if you're young, you're not going to see it right away at all by any right. stretch of the imagination. So, um, and uh, I mean, a lot of horror films delve into that territory of the era too. So, um, mm-hmm. it, it's very fascinating to see how, watching them years later, they kind of fall into that. Um, uh, so, but anyway, uh, after this reveal, uh, gravely uh, convinces Captain Wiles to dig up the uh, to bury the body and then to go to the police uh and uh they go to they find sam and jennifer hanging out at her her house where they're kind of convinced everything is the end mrs gravely miss gravely and uh wild show up and go nope that's not the case at all guys we got to do this all over again um and uh uh they uh are trying to convince themselves that they should uh, basically try to find a way to have the body discovered without having to implicate that they've been burying it and digging it up and burying it again. Right. So they all go to deal with the body again, but Wiggy shows up and announces to Sam, hey, someone wants to buy your paintings. He's a millionaire. He's a millionaire. Uh, so they go back to uh, Wiggy's dry goods store, uh, speak with the millionaire, played by Parker Fenley, and... Parker Fenley's like, well, these are beautiful paintings, and I think they're wonderful. And he says, like, well, I don't care what you think, or I don't care what anybody thinks. My paintings, I know they're good because I made them. Right. 
If you ever... <laughs> yeah, I don't care what the critic thinks. And who knows? The critic probably said, I like it, but he didn't care yeah. if the critic thought it was good or bad. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we see this a lot today with our opinions about Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. know, like, so, uh, you know, it's it's the age old thing, art versus critics and uh, critics versus art. So, yeah. but so he, he, um, that Captain Wiles tells him to be reasonable and accept money for it, even though he's not going to accept money. And, you know, Millionaire says you can be as unreasonable as you want. And so Marlowe decides to get something for everybody. Uh, he gets uh, a box of strawberries delivered uh, daily to uh, Jennifer. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he uh, he <laughs> I, he goes through the list of stuff that he's going to get. Like, I mean, Wiggy wants a chromium plated cash register that rings a bell. <laughs> uh, and then he goes to he goes to Mrs. Graves and he says a beauty salon for you. <laughs> Right. Like that was one of those things where I'm just like, okay, that's just mean. <laughs> like, right. Um, but uh, and then uh, he goes down the line and finally gets to, to, to Jennifer again. It's just like, what would you want? And then he whispers something into the millionaire's ear, and he goes like, yeah, that should be easily arranged. We don't know what it is, so I guess our MacGuffin in this respect is the secret. <laughs> what did he whisper? Uh, um, well, actually, Harry's the MacGuffin, but there's also a. Uh, yeah, MacGuffin within that whisper. Um, unlike Lost in Translation, we do learn what that thing uh, that was being whispered is. So um, we don't have to. Right. We don't have to debate it uh, for years in in normal <laughs> conversation. Um, I do love that movie, but I hate that conversation. Um, it's not important. Um, <laughs> uh, but so they, uh, uh, Jennifer and Sam decide to get married. <sighs> And uh, it's, it's it's amazing how fast you could fall in love in the 50s. Like, it, it's pretty sure. remarkable. No, this is one day, no, keep in mind. All takes place in one day. No legwork whatsoever. Phil, Phil, you, I'm sure you, you, you had to have a long courtship before you tied the knot. And, you know, like. Well, I knew my wife for, let's see, like eight years, I think, before we got married. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if you had lived in the 50s, it would have happened within five hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe seven years, something yeah. like that. Don't quote me on that. But yes. <laughs> um, no, don't worry. We'll we'll, we'll we'll retract anything we have to in a later episode. Okay. <laughs> um, it's close enough. Yeah, but so um, but they so they go back to the house. They're ready to celebrate, but then Sam goes, "Darn it, we forgot about Harry again." Uh, because uh, if uh, if they want to get married, uh, Jennifer has to. That they have to be sure that, that he's dead so that Jennifer is now legally unmarried so that they can get wed. So mm-hmm. they go to d- uh, dig up the body again in the attempts to have the coroner look it over and figure out the terms, of, the causes of death and basically kind of clear them all out of the way. Um, actually, an interesting point that Mrs. Gravely brings up is that like now that they're doing this again, there are now two people who possibly had a motive for killing him, which is Jennifer and Sam, because even though Sam just met Jennifer and they have just decided to get married, there is the possibility that they could see this as like a, a torrid love affair situation. So, right. um, which already they're, you know, uh, they're, they're so, they're so mixed up in like five different plots at this point that it doesn't like, it, it wouldn't matter if they dug up that body one more time anyway. Right. Um, and then a wonderful comedy of errors where, they're trying to hide the body from Calvin Wiggs, who comes in and shows him, hey, I found your sketchbook. And <laughs> Sam takes the sketchbook and shows him how Calvin's not appreciating his art. <laughs> and I love <laughs> I love 
uh, Calvin's response was just like, "You just destroyed federal evidence." <laughs> such a Cohen, you know what you just did? such a Cohen Brothers esque delivery by modern context. Like Hitchcock's doing it first, but he's yes. like, "You, st- you know what you just did, Everett? You just stole- you just destroyed evidence." <laughs> it's wonderful, uh, but. Uh, 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 the 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 coroner comes, sees the body, uh, and they they uh, uh, distract Calvin and get him to go away. Uh, Captain Wiles goes back to steal uh, uh, back Harry's shoes, uh, but it looks like he's a coward when he decides to run out there. So when he right. comes back in, he has to confront Mrs. Gravely, and uh, he he's said throughout the film that he's encountered death many times and faced terrible danger. And then in a soft-spoken moment, he goes, Mrs. Gravely, what if I was to tell you I was actually the captain of a tugboat? <laughs> <laughs> and she says one of the most beautiful things, which is like, then I would say you were the most handsome tugboat captain that ever lived. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was just like, ah, oh, God, They're get, so ma- get married, you old couple, get married. <laughs> Well, and she was not totally honest with him throughout the movie either. Yeah. So, she all, you know, obviously she lied about her encounter with the guy at for with Harry at first. Yeah. But she also, when they were having lunch, told him that the cup that she, he was drinking out of was like a family heirloom, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting story of these two people like trying so desperately to impress one another that within themselves is the actual attraction. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, wonderful little piece. So they decide after all this is said and done, wouldn't it be wonderful if Arnie were to rediscover the body <laughs> So they take the body out and basically compel Arnie to go rediscover it again, like by just letting him go out and play and see the body again and to go warn or or to go let somebody know that he's found it. Uh, And they're waiting in the bushes and they're going like, what what are you waiting for? Like Arnie comes to the body and just stands there again. And they're going like, what are you waiting for? Arnie, go back and tell me, go, go back and tell me what a long, what a long boy. And then Sam goes, beat it, you little creep. (laughs) Right. I mean, I mean, go back, hurry son. home, hurry home, son. <laughs> yeah. um, and then he goes, he goes back to warn uh, Jennifer. Uh, they meanwhile reveal to the audience what uh, Sam asked for uh, the millionaire to get Jennifer in uh, him, which was a double bed. Uh, right. So, and they all just kind of giggle. And then a Chiron comes up in front of Harry's feet that says the trouble with Harry is over, which I love that they do that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about old Hollywood sometimes, or even like really smart filmmakers who just kind of put it out there for people in a fun, kitschy way. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's so it's, it's, it's something I equate with to Mel Brooks nowadays where it's just like, you know, kind of, it's not a fourth wall break per se, but it, it addresses the, the existence of the film in and of itself in a, in a right. story tell a story, t- fairy tale type of way. Um, and that thus ends the trouble with Harry, um, the end in Alfred Hitchcock picture. Um, it, it's a wonderful film. Like I, I feel like I've talked a lot about it, but like what, what when you watch this film nowadays, is is it like it's hands is it hands down your favorite of Hitchcock's films in terms of the filmmaking, or is it just more of a personal thing? Well, it's definitely a personal thing. It, to me, it's definitely the most fun, funniest one. I, I don't know if I would put it. I mean, when you get me to ranking things, then I get all like caught up on myself. So I don't know if I could rank it. Oh, absolutely. exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, but, exactly. But it, but it is the one you. But it is the one that's the closest to you. And I think ultimately, you've d- described ultimately it is that that macabre sense of humor kind of going mm-hmm. throughout it. 
Um, in rediscovering it for myself, I've kind of learned that the reason I love it is because it's it's it feels like it's the most Hitchcock on his own, like showing his emotions on his sleeve kind of thing. Like it's um, it's not in the same way that he does with like a Vertigo or uh, even like a, a Psycho to an extent, like where he's dealing with psyches. But it's just like his his heart is on his sleeve in this movie. Like it's very yeah. much a very sweet. Uh, albeit dark movie um, that that falls in line with the things that amuses him, and I do like watching filmmakers having fun for themselves because the 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 passion for it clearly shows, and I think it's very evident in here with the way it's shot, the way it's pre-planned, and the way it's executed, and the way the humor is handled is spectacular. Um, it's, it's well, I, I have a theory about it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about it being like his most personal one. I think it's his most romantic movie and not because of uh, Sam Marlowe and Jennifer Rogers. But as we were talking about with Captain Wiles and Miss Gravely, like their relationship feels the most like a genuine romantic relationship than any of the other, you know, glamorous things that he has in his other movies. And I think that it may be that that relationship to him parallels his own marriage because i think i mean obviously we know they were very close yeah um i think that that might represent more of his type of relationship than a lot of others that are in his movies and it's and it actually i would i would be inclined to agree because of how devoted he was to alma you Mm -hmm. know we haven't really been talking necessarily about the personal life of hitchcock and the outside the films uh, situations with Hitchcock. And obviously there's both positive and negative things that fall within to that territory. But um, one thing is certain and Alma is going to get her own episode. I am working on that because I want to, I don't want to do it with just a bunch of men talking about it. I I would like to get a woman's perspective on it That's Um, because it would be not only fair, but correct. Um, But uh, the, uh, the thing that I've noticed throughout this rewatch is the importance of Alma, not just from a filmmaking standpoint, but in terms of just how, how he, she pushed him to keep going in a lot of circumstances. And so this gravely and wiles do represent that. Even if it's not intentional, it does feel like there is something permeating from that, that you can compare because I don't know if this is, I, I mean, like this could be a personal film for Hitchcock, but I think do think ultimately it is a, an attempt to go outside the, his normal boundaries on a, on a surface level. But once you dig yeah. deep, you see that, that stuff. And, you know, I think that the Jennifer Rogers, Sam Marlowe relationship is the most traditionally Hitchcockian thing about it because of like the, the, the banter back and forth and the right. um, the smart assery that kind of permeates through. Well, they're hilarious. Movies. They're no, really oh, funny. Oh, Shirley MacLaine is amazing in this movie. <laughs> it's it is she really is. astounding that this is her first movie. Um, and you know, and, and I and I think ultimately it's the it's it's the homespun nature of the film that I think makes it stand out. Not just in Hitchcock's oeuvre, but in terms of cinema, just like here's a dark dark story with very very kind people. Um, uh-huh. And it's very much we were talking about the Coen brothers all throughout this episode. It would be fair to assume that the hitch that, that the Coens have seen this movie and have taken more than one note from it. I'm sure of it. Yeah, there's like or at the very least the sense of humor like what my favorite film they ever did is a serious man. And 
the the those two films these two films can kind of correlate to each other in terms of like there's something very like simple and not like simple and sweet happening here but it's also wrapped up in this dark dark cloak right um and you know uh, and and even like their their lighter fare like oh brother art thou or i'd even say the lady killers has a lot of influence from something like trouble with harry um yeah the lady killers definitely has it and like it's weird how it doesn't really homage the original lady killer so much as it goes into the trouble with harry territory yeah because them them dumping the bodies over the bridge in lady killers is very similar to the 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 way they're kind of casually getting rid of the the harry body in this movie right um well and even even their endings because a lot of times coen brothers you know and people don't get their endings they'll be very vague or ambiguous or whatever and hitchcock in this movie in particular like the end of it, you know, they come up with this plot where he's gonna, the kid's going to tell them, you know, tell the police that he found this body yesterday or today because he doesn't understand those things and it's all going to be solved. But the the people who are all in on it are still at the top of the hill. The kid's running back to the house. There's state police involved. We don't know how this thing resolves. Yeah. And yet the movie tells us the trouble with Harry is over. So, yeah. His, you know, it's he's like, yeah, it's fine. You get the point. You know, it, you didn't have, need to spell everything out. Yeah, and I think they took a lot of that. You know, yeah, it no, it it it's actually I didn't even think about it that way. That's a good point because it does. Just because the movie tells us it's over doesn't necessarily mean it's over. <laughs> right. They have not solved anything really. They're still in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Potentially, they, they may have to bury that body again for all they know. <laughs> right. It's a it's a loop. They're stuck in a loop, Phil. <laughs> yep. Um, it's like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> oh God! I, I the more I keep hearing Groundhog's Day being mentioned, the more I know I have to revisit it. I haven't watched it in a long time. Oh, that's it's wonderful. I know it's one of those classic films that I don't go back to for whatever reason. But I, I, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. Um, the the premiere um was held in Vermont for this film. Uh, and revenue was donated to victims of a recent flood at that time. Um. Contemporary reviews were meh, like at least stateside. Um, Bosley, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who's a critic that every time I read his stuff, I kind of want to throw things at the wall. Um, <laughs> but then I just remember, like, it's okay. Rex, we- Rex Reed is worse. Um, <laughs> uh, he is. But, uh, it, it, uh, but he says, like, it's not a particularly witty or clever script that John Michael Hayes has put together from a novel by Jack Trevor Story, nor does Mr. Hitchcock's direction make it spin. The pace is leisurely, almost sluggish, and the humor frequently is strained, but it does possess mild and mellow merriment all the way. The performances <laughs> are beguiling in a briskly artificial style, and there's an especially disarming screwball blandness about the manner of Miss McLean. Yeah, Bosley Crowther didn't get this movie, clearly. <laughs> no, he, I don't think he was watching the same movie we did. No, 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 yeah. It, it's very similar to how uh, whenever the other real nerds watch a Hunger Games movie and then Ryan watches a Hunger Games movie, they aren't watching the same <laughs> movie. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, But uh, there were critics who did appreciate it. Um, the film uh, was, however, brought to uh, overseas to Europe where it gained a huge appreciation mm-hmm. uh, so much so that so that the film was re-released in america based on the uh status that it had been receiving overseas and had been reevaluated 
within a relatively short amount of time. Like the reevaluation came uh, almost like almost immediately after because of the exposure right. in Europe, because Europe, as we said before, is going to get this humor in a way that we're not going to initially. Um, it's And it's weird because you don't see a lot of films that get a huge critical reevaluation within that short a period. Um, usually, right. it, usually, especially with the, the cult status of stuff today, it takes time. Um, and we're also very quick to declare things a masterpiece immediately. I, I know I do it all the time. Um, and, but, uh, but yeah, but it was a disappointment at the box office initially. It only earned 3.5 million. And, uh, it played for a year though, like I said, in England and Rome and a year and a half in France. Um, this is one of the Hitchcock five and you're familiar with the Hitchcock, Hitchcock five, yes, correct? the lost films, if you will, the, the lost films until 1984, when James Stewart did that wonderful trailer, I should play that trailer at some point where oh, yeah. Hitchcock's or Stewart's introducing each of the films and it's Stewart in his later years. So he's just like, to me, this is one of Hitch's best or you'll, you'll thrill to the trouble with Harry. <laughs> Right. I just love I love I'm here to tell you about a very special event. It's, it's these films you probably saw 20 years ago. Well, they're fucking back. Um, uh, but so um, it was unavailable. This, though. this gives me a revelation real quick. Yeah, I didn't even picture this. I didn't put this together before, but it's probably why I saw it when I was a kid. Because 1985, right? That's when they were released, something like that. Yeah, they were finally reissued in 1984, along with the uh, four other ones. Yeah, so, right. So. You know, I was uh, seven, eight at the time, uh-huh. and that's probably when it was new at the video store. My parents were like, "Oh, let's go get the new movie that's ready." Uh-huh. That totally, I never like connected that before. So I, I so then I have a theory. Um, okay, James Stewart is was aware of your existence. Yes, and he and he said, "Guys, guys, we've got to get this movie out for Phil. Do it for Phil." That's it. For Phil. We solved it. Now, I don't I don't want to hear yes, we could put out Vertigo, Rope, and Man Who Knew Too Much, but Trouble with Harry has to go to Phil. It, it's gotta get to Phil. I don't know how we're gonna fucking do it. Now, Janet, listen to me. Janet, sit down. We're gonna do this. You solved it. You brought it to me. I, 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 I've never thought of that before. That totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and then when and then when James Stewart died, he said on his deathbed, at least I got the trouble with Harry out to Phil. <laughs> Fair, farewell, Mr. Vecchio, <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> One of the joys of this podcast has been making James Stewart and Albert Alfred Hitchcock say the word fuck. <laughs> Let me tell you, you do some very good impressions. I'm, I'm, I've honestly been very impressed with several of them. Uh, so. I, I'm trying. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where... Uh, I mean, we've been influenced by the the Smod Castle and all that stuff, and Ralph Garman's impressions definitely inspired me at some point to just say, "Fuck it, I want to do this." <laughs> um, but so anyway, yeah, that's the trouble with Harry. Um, now we'll we'll wrap we'll wrap up with the final uh piece of this uh Hitchcock humor segment, um, with a little show called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Oh, yes. you hear you hear the mar- the funeral march of a marionette. This is this is what it is. Yep. Oh, it's it sounds so it sounds so plinky and wonderful, and then there's a big old silhouette coming through. It's almost as if though it's the inspiration for the title of this show. Um, and that's um, right. Yeah. So yes, it's 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 wonderful, and I love it. Um, but yeah, the the show starts off. Um, uh, it, it starts uh the same year as the Trouble with Harry comes out, 1955, uh, and it goes into 1965. 
Um, between 1962 and 1965, it's renamed the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Um, the show is developed um, it, um, with the help of Joan Harrison and uh, Norman Lloyd. Norman Lloyd, if you don't know, uh, was the actor in Saboteur who falls off the Statue of Liberty. Uh, right. And um, he, uh, Norman Lloyd was a terrific actor, but also just a wonderful producer who got a lot of stuff done. Joan Harrison, Hitchcock's secretary, who then became a producer in her own right. And though Nor- Lloyd and Harrison really get the show uh, to the working precision that it uh, is. Hitchcock has approval over the directors and the stories. And in order to obviously sell it, he does these interstitials at the beginning, at the end um, to present the story and then to wrap up the story and tell you about next week. Um, And it's really, they filmed a lot of them uh, at once in a bulk. Um, And uh, the, uh, introductions and these monologues were all written by James B. Allardyce, um, who was a comedy writer and um, uh, came from Ohio and really understood how to play into the Hitchcock sense of humor. Um, it, it's and you said you watched these beginning as early as when it was on Nick at Night, which I was right, I yeah. wasn't even around for that Nick at Night. Um, I found these on DVD later on. Yeah, it was, it was Alfred Hitchcock Presents and and The Twilight Zone. And, you know, they were perfect companions for each other. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, to me, it, you know, it was by far the first director that I was aware of as a kid. Like, I, you know, as a kid, I don't know who – I mean, I loved E.T., but I didn't know who Steven Spielberg was. But I definitely knew who Alfred Hitchcock was because of those segments, you know. It's, it's actually interesting. I – Hitchcock is the first one to do that for me. Uh the one interesting one, though, that I I didn't know who Martin Scorsese was until I saw him in interviews on Hitch uh, regarding Hitchcock films mm-hmm. and other classic cinema. So my introduction to Martin Scorsese was listening to him rattle so, <laughs> or talk and, and just like hearing Scorsese talk about those things. And then I'm just and then when I finally saw The Aviator, which was my first one I saw. I was just like, man, this this guy's great. What else did he do? And then you open up a door and there's like a cabinet of classics fall on you like Fibber McGee in his closet. Um, it, it's pretty delightful. Um, but but Alfred Hitchcock presents these interstitials and these opening monologues. They're they're so wonderful. If you've been listening to the show, the, the a lot of the quotes that I'm pulling from at the beginning of each episode are from introductions uh, mainly from the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, but a few from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones is actually from one of the most famous episodes, which is um, uh, Lamb for the Slaughter, uh, which is the story is uh, a, a woman who uh, kills her husband by hitting him over the head with a frozen piece of meat. Like a lamb shank. <laughs> yeah, lamb shank. Yeah, and uh, feeding that lamb shank to the officers who come to investigate uh, it, it's it's a wonderful thing, but at the beginning of the episode, he's shopping around with a grocery cart, and a cop is writing him a ticket, and he says, "I have to play the introduction. I'll have to play the clip for it because it's a great clip." But it's, it's like I don't understand. I was in the right lane and all this stuff. Anyway, here's the story. <laughs> um, but then there's uh, there's a lot of other great introductions for it. My my personal favorite one is the one I put in in episode two, uh, where he's uh, going through the film set and he goes like, uh, uh, you know, 
films take a lot of time, camera, makeup men, all that stuff. All part of a team. I'm very happy. And they in turn, and then you hear a light crash, and he turns and he goes, you know, sometimes I think about getting out of this business. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stop laughing when I think about it. Um, do you have a favorite uh, Hitchcock intro that you could, like, pinpoint to? I I don't know. That, that might be tough. I'll tell you one of the things that I – my favorite parts of his – we're not even, I mean, I love the intros, but I loved also his bits when you would go to commercial. He would always do little bits where he made fun of the sponsors. Yes, and that's a and that's a tradition that he's carrying on from radio. Um, not that he did, but that other, a lot of comedians of the era um, would make fun of the product. Like the most famous, not to bring Jack Benny back into this, but one of the most famous <laughs> is that the reason that Jell-O is as popular as it is today is because Jell-O was saved by Jack Benny when he got it as a sponsor, and they, he and his announcer, Don Wilson, found a way to make fun of the product each and every week, and Jell-O sales like, f- rose up to the ceilings, and you couldn't right. keep that stuff on the shelves. So, um, and, and, and it continues into it. So Hitchcock clearly has the wherewithal to know he can poke fun at that stuff, and the stuff that Allardyce gives him allows him to kind of pull poke that finger a little bit in uh, at the at the sponsor's direction and thankfully the sponsor's okay with it because they allow him to continue for close to 10 years so right um, well and they clearly understood that it was all part of the show you know yeah and it's and it's a new medium too and they're and they're very willing to experiment with it similar to how they would with radio but and then television specifically um what's interesting as you brought this up earlier is that Hitchcock is the first director a lot of people are aware of, at the very least from up till about the point my generation starts uh, ends and another begins, um, because he certainly was one of the first where I'm like Hitchcock means director. Uh, I think I knew mm-hmm. Spiel- I think I knew of Spielberg's name, but I didn't know of his visage um, or his fun trucker hats. But <laughs> uh, uh, at least I think that's what they are. Uh, but. Uh, and uh, but Hitchcock, you are aware of, and in part in part thanks to those U- Universal Video introductions. But his his visage is out there, his persona is out there, and he had this before, um, as early on as radio, but also just the way he kind of got involved with the press and the promotion of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where it's it's blown up and it becomes a huge thing, because. At this point, he's on television every week. Audiences right. across America are are seeing his uh, visage on, on a on a weekly basis, and so the the name of Hitchcock becomes a marker of quality, not just for the shows he's uh, the stories he's showing, but also the humor that he's presenting. This influence extends into the movies. Because now when you watch at this point forward, when you watch a Hitchcock movie trailer, Hitchcock's in it. it there's right. at the very least one or two trailers that have him in it for each film. The most famous of which is the Psycho trailer. I, don't worry, <laughs> I'm not going to play it again. <laughs> Although I love that trailer, even though people I do too. see I'm glad you do. I mean, I, I, I get why my guest Marshall uh, wasn't a fan of it. I totally understand it. I just love it because he's walking around acting all cheeky. Um, well, again, it's my whole approach is that he made Psycho so he can make a video of him going around and joking about yeah. it. Yeah. 
that's why he made Psycho. He's like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to talk about this Psycho killer, and I'm going to walk around, and that's what his plan was. Yeah, he's... No, no, no. I, were you fucking nuts? I don't really want to make this movie. I just... I have to in order for me to do this fun little funny or die sketch. <laughs> yeah, I got this great trailer planned out. It's like yeah, a movie. Yeah, listen, and, and and not only that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm I'm going to take it up a step and tell people this is so shocking that you can't tell anybody about it after you've seen it. So I'm going to make the publicity campaign a fucking nightmare for the theaters and the studio. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I mean, it's a genius move, and you know yeah. he does it as late as. Um, frenzy he's in the trailer for frenzy um looking through uh the market square uh where the grocers are and you know, kind of pulling out food and then talking about the movie you're about to, to see a trailer for and it's so much so that like the last film he makes is family plot uh and the poster of family plot is uh a lot of the characters and then a uh a crystal ball and inside that crystal ball is hitchcock's head winking so <laughs> his his persona was so marketed to the point where it's it's no surprise that we know who he is today because they basically made made it made it so through years of cultivating that personality and that image. Right. Um and you it extends even beyond that like you said into those books uh into the three investigators into these Alfred Hitchcock mystery museum like collections of short stories by pulp authors that image and that visage is 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 out there and it's all thanks to these wonderful introductions which you can find clips of them on youtube if you are like interested in like you can i think hitch the actual hitchcock presents official page has a 10 minute clip of some of the best from the halford hitchcock hour um it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing to, to, to look at. And the stories in them are really good, too. And some of them are funny. Lamb for the Slaughter is a really funny, funny story. Yeah. Especially- well, it's much like Twilight Zone. I would say it's almost divided down the middle. You've got really good creepy ones, but you also have some great comedy in those. Yeah, and and they they they, they delve further into that trouble with Harry sense of humor, which I think is, mm-hmm. a, is an important part of all that because – he was able to eventually win out his like proving that the audience did want it eventually. Like even if it doesn't work financially with trouble with Harry, it does work down the line. Well, it almost seems like trouble with Harry was testing ground for that. Like, you know, I'm going to, this is where we're going with this, you know, let's see if this is going to work out. Right. And pay, pay uh, pr- point proven. Cause it's yep. a television show that, still sells plenty of dvd copies which i'm I'm thankful for because like i I mean streaming's nice but i like to have them in my hand so oh yeah and if it's a show Me that too. if it's that popular that you can maintain those sales then god bless it for its existence yeah. um so that's that's basically it that there's this is the hitchcock comedy corner in that respect um, Can I point out two more hitchcock comedies that i think are deserve some attention absolutely yes so there's, I, I was looking through all of his filmography and kind of thinking through it all, and there are two others that I think deserve the title of comedy in addition to these two we've discussed. A lot of them have humor throughout, yeah. but there's two that I think are more pure comedy than the rest. One of them is, you just mentioned, Family Plot, which was his last movie. Yes. Which I think is highly underrated. I, I love that movie. It's a, I think it's it, really funny. Oh, it's a wonderful film. It's It's my... My, I never have an issue with it per se, but it is very clear because you have it coming right after Frenzy that 
two different things are being done by the ending point. Um, yeah, but, but, but that would never, I would never discredit family plot. It's a wonderful film. It's, it's one of the first Bruce Dern things I ever saw. So, mm-hmm. um, I have Madeline Kahn. Yeah. Karen Black. And, and, and again, because of this, I think that the Coen brothers are inspired by Alfred Hitchcock because they also alternate between drama and comedy, like on a regular basis. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and the other one is one of his silent ones. Which is um, the farmer's wife, and I don't know if you've watched this one or not. I have. It, yes, that. Yes, it is a comedy. <laughs> it, it's. I mean, it's a you know a drama comedy. It's a dramedy, if you will. Um, but it's very, very funny. There's a lot of great gags with all the different potential, uh, you know, wives that he's looking for. Right. So, yeah. If you have the taste for a silent film, that's a good comedy to look at as well. Actually, it would be interesting to possibly do uh if not another comedy episode on hitchcock to do fa- i do want to do family plot but i want to talk about it as as it being the final thing right. but uh but the farmer's wife like definitely when we get into the silent films which we do have to get into um uh which i probably would want you back on for it because you'd be the one who's been watching them <laughs> other, than, <laughs> I would love to, other yes. than me but uh the uh yes the farmer's wife is is definitely one to explore because it it's another area where he's testing a lot of new ground and trying to decide like what's his, what what's his style, what's his technique, what works for him, what doesn't work for him. And the Farmer's right. Wife is a good film. It's it's a, it's a it's, yeah. a it's a film that I wish they'd do a proper restoration on. Uh, but it's like but but the the copies that I've seen are are fine. They're watchable, I guess. It works. Yeah, yeah. it's it's hard when you've got Mill Creek or. Uh, other companies kind of putting out like 15 other copies of them that were sourced from 10 different prints. So, um, but it's, yeah, uh, honestly, the early silent ones are easier to watch for me than some of the early talky ones. Cause the audio quality is so bad. Oh, I, I agree until Kino Lorber put out uh murder and blackmail. Uh, they, yeah. they, they sound great. <laughs> like, I need to pick that up then, because my copies are still questionable. Yeah, get the Blu-rays of them. They're twenty bucks a pop, but they're they're it's Kino Lobor putting them out, and it's uh, wonderful. Um, but so that wraps up the Hitchcock comedy of it all. Uh, Phil, do you have any other final thoughts on Hitchcock and what he means to you, and how he kind of forms a lot of how you approach stuff, like your show, uh, Mandarian Orange Show, and and also Alex P. Keaton is my friend. You have a dark sensibility about you, and I'm sure that definitely comes from Hitchcock. <laughs> well, I, it's definitely things. a part of it for sure. I mean, I I think my sense of humor has definitely uh, you know been formed to a certain degree because of Alfred Hitchcock, and I mean, honestly, a large part of my interest in filmmaking and you know I've had you know limited you know success. I went to to college to be a filmmaker, and um, my one IMDb page is courtesy of you mr eastman so i'm always <laughs> grateful for that yeah. um but you know i think i think that being aware of the creative process and of what all goes into making movies and and just making things uh in general you know it's why i'm doing podcasts because i haven't broken into hollywood yet but i can make something now that i put out there and and i think alfred hitchcock always did that you know he whoever he was working for he made sure to get something done he wanted to get done sometimes he had to make deals but he got it out there yeah it, um, it's very much that that creative energy that he never he never truly lost and, and what's what's interesting ultimately if you listened about his later years is that 
He was trying very hard, like a lot of other filmmakers um, of his time, to stay relevant, but also to just keep doing things. And uh, it just at a certain point, it slows down and virtually becomes the end. But uh, he was a he was a guy who never stopped wanting to challenge himself and further create. Like he makes Psycho primarily because he wants to do something different from what he's been doing for the past 10 years. Um, right. And then, and that thus changes the game. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it always comes out as, as a singular piece of unique cinema. So, yeah. well, thank you, Phil, for chatting with us today. And yeah. Thank you so much for having bra- me. Braving, braving an illness. To... <laughs> I know. Sorry for the croaky voice. Oh no, you're fine. You sound, you sound wonderful. Like, believe me, like <laughs> if they've been hearing my croaky voice for now, eight episodes, that <laughs> be right. yeah. So, but, uh, that's going to wrap it up for the Shamley silhouette this time. Uh, you can follow the Shamley silhouette on real nerds, uh, you can look up our new Instagram page that has just been created as I'm uh, uh, recording this. It's at the Shamley Silhouette. Uh, I made the handle difficult so that if you really want to seek it out, you'll seek it out. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can also follow me on Real Nerd Zach uh, on Instagram. Um, the uh, the articles come out uh, every two weeks, uh, and the podcast episodes come out uh, almost immediately after those articles. So be on the lookout for them on the Real Nerds podcast feed. Um, next episode is unknown because this is the last pre-planned recording that I am doing today. So, uh, we'll have to, uh, well, you, it'll be a mystery. Ooh, uh, Ooh. A, a Hitchcock mystery. Alpha- keep us in suspense. Is that what you're telling me? So, yeah. Yes. I will keep you in suspense. <laughs> That's a radio show guys. Uh, but yes, until next time, then this has been the Shamley silhouette. Good night. Is waiting for me there. So I'm dragging the train to Tuscaloosa. Oh, I love that choo choo sound. Flagging the train to Tuscaloosa. Flagging the train that's homeward.